Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. And while we continue our series, A Vision for Christmas today, with a message entitled, All Hail King Jesus. So let's turn in our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 10, verses 12 to 34, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. After Jesus was born, Matthew tells us that Magi traveled from the east and arrived in Jerusalem with a question. They had seen a sign in the sky, and from that, and from what they had been told from the Jews, from the Jewish captivity, these Magi knew that God had promised a great king to arise in Israel. And so when they saw the star, they traveled to Jerusalem and upset the entire city. Where's the great king, they asked. We've seen a sign in the sky, and we've journeyed here to look for him. I mean, surely this city knows where the king is. And of course, King Herod is insane with jealousy and the insecurity that there are those who want to depose him. He's immediately on the alert. The theologians are called for, and then they're asked where the great king was to be born. And they opened the biblical scrolls to the book of Micah and found Micah 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, From you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Now there, said the theologians, go to Bethlehem. And of course, as we know, Herod would eventually, not knowing who the child was, I mean, he would descend on Bethlehem and slaughter the boys in the city. You know, Christmas often presents us with a set of, if you think of it, contradictory images. The child is laid in a cattle feeding trough. There is no room for him in the inn born in meekness, born in poverty, born without the trappings of power, vulnerable and immediately persecuted, parents fleeing to Egypt as refugees. And yet, does not the New Testament begin with the words, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, or Jesus the Messiah? And then it adds, the son of David. This is the long-expected ruler. This is the ruler not only of Israel, but he is the destined ruler of the earth. But then, of course, we meet the adult Jesus telling one of his would-be followers that he has no place to lay his head. Even the wild animals, the foxes and the birds, have a home, he says. I, on the other hand, have no such luxury. Now, how is Jesus the great king? Now, we're studying Christmas from those oft-quoted passages from Isaiah chapter 6 to 11. And as we've already seen, in spite of the war clouds that were forming over Israel and over Judah, Isaiah saw that one day a great sign would appear. A virgin would conceive, and the child that was born to her would rule the earth. Now, to a great many of us today, we have seen the kingdom of Jesus as an entirely future event. He's come in meekness now, but one day he's going to rule the earth. Now is the time of the manger. Then, when he returns in glory, that will be the time of the throne. Now, of course, it is true, but it's not the whole truth. Jesus is reigning today. I mean, after all, he announced that he was the king, and with his coming, he said that the kingdom of heaven was now at hand. Well, how so? Well, part of the answer, and I, and I emphasize it's only part, but part of the answer is found in Isaiah. You'll remember that those early chapters in Isaiah began with the alliance of Syria and Israel. They were making war against Judah. And in turn, Judah had formed an alliance with a very great, powerful empire of Assyria. Those were dark days, and no one knew what was going to occur, except, of course, for Isaiah. He knew that the Assyrians were going to utterly conquer the alliance of Israel and Syria. 
He also knew that King Ahaz of Judah had made a very wicked decision. Instead of going to the Lord for salvation, he had made a treaty with the king of Assyria. And Isaiah knew that the Assyrian Empire would shave the economy of Judah. They would leave Judah in ruin, and the effect would feel like the Euphrates River had flowed into Jerusalem, a flood that came as high as the neck. But that leaves us with a question. Is God really in control, or is the powerful empire of Assyria in control? You know, that is of the future of those nations. To an untrained eye, or from the observer who doesn't have the benefit of Isaiah's vision of God, what's going on? Is this just global geopolitics, or does God rule as king? This question is important for us today. Jesus is king of kings, we say, and yes, it's true, he is. And then we hear of Christians persecuted in more and more nations around the world. And we live in a country that seems less and less tolerant of our lifestyle, especially when it comes to our insistence on sexual purity, of biblical sexual ethics. We find ourselves on our heels. How is the babe in the manger the king? It seems the kings of the earth don't actually think so. And and sometimes even God's people, I think, just gulp and wonder, is he really the king? I mean, maybe. We just hope that one day he will be, but as for now, we're just trying to hold on. Well, given that Isaiah has said that the child born of a virgin will rule the world, well, let's get back to Isaiah's immediate situation. And in the passage we're looking at today, we're going to see that the prophet has something to say about the way in which God, who is seated on the throne and rules all the nations, will carry out that reign. You see, in our passage, notice God has something to say about the empire of Assyria, which was, of course, the superpower in the Middle East. I'm reading Isaiah chapter 10, verses 5 and 6. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. The staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation, I send him. And against the people of my wrath, I command him to take spoil and seize plunder, and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. Are you surprised? Assyria is the rod of God's anger. You might think of the book of Proverbs, in which the rod is being used to discipline a child. Proverbs said that the rod is correction, and it's used to teach the child to avoid the pathway of evil and destruction, and to take a good pathway that leads to life. And in this case, The rod in God's hand is the great and powerful empire. Did God create these dark clouds that now hung over the nations of Israel and Judah? Is this crisis actually manufactured by God? Notice that Isaiah says that God has sent Assyria against a godless nation. See, in this case, the nation he has in mind is not Judah, but Israel. Israel has been mocking the Lord. They've trampled on his ways. They've set up three shrines of idolatrous worship. They've appointed kings that oppose the God of heaven. They've killed 120,000 of the Judahites. Now they're threatening to overthrow the kingdom of David and set up a puppet ruler in Jerusalem and then end for all time the worship of the one true God. But what Israel didn't take into account is the vision of Isaiah. God sits on a glorious throne and he has a rod in his hand and he's willing to use it. And now he's commanding Assyria to trample down the streets of the capital of Israel, which is Samaria. And Israel will become plunder. That's how God is ruling. Well, now that might sound surprising. If you told the Assyrians that they were the rod in the hands of the great God, well, I think they might have disagreed with you. 
See, from their perspective, the reason they were powerful is because they had their own gods and goddesses and because they had managed to put together a nation that was the most powerful nation on earth. Well, very interestingly enough, Isaiah would agree. The Assyrians had an altogether different viewpoint. So let's keep reading, shall we? From Isaiah chapter 10, verses 7 to 11. But he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think. But it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. For he says, Are not my commanders all kings? Is not Kelno like Carchemish? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols, whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? See, this is really fascinating. Assyria doesn't intend to be God's wrath. That's because from her perspective, she's not obeying God. Instead, they had a war room and a royal palace in which they planned to cut off nations. Their plan was brilliant. Their commanders were kings, says Isaiah. Well, that meant that they had vassal kings who served under Tiglath-Pileser and who maintained that title as kings. And that's what made those kings or commanders fiercely loyal to Assyria. And furthermore, as far as the Assyrians were concerned, they made no distinction regarding the nations they conquered. It, it didn't really matter to them if it was Kelno or Carchemish or Hamath or Arpad or Syria and then Israel. They were all just one more nation that they could smash on the way of building the most powerful empire of the day. They didn't see anything special about Israel as opposed to all the others. But then brilliantly, Isaiah adds something that raises our eyebrows. The king of Assyria is not only destroying nations, he's also smashing the idols of those nations. He's proving their idols to be impotent the way they actually are. God had planned to expose the futility of those religions all along, and he's now doing it. Ah, but wait a minute, we might say. Don't the Assyrians simply claim that their idols are greater than the others rather than giving glory to God? Yeah, that's what they think. But hang on, there's something they hadn't counted on. At year's end, we can't help but reflect on the partnership of so many across Canada that make this Bible teaching ministry possible. Particularly, the important role our monthly partners play in providing consistent, reliable, foundational support for every resource Back to the Bible Canada has to offer. Recently, Jane wrote these words of encouragement. As monthly partners, my husband and I count it a great privilege to financially support Back to the Bible Canada. It's just a small but important way for us to partner in the gospel. Through listening to Dr. John's podcasts, we are challenged to know the Bible and prioritize our relationship with our Savior. Jane, your commitment to Bible teaching means so much. Perhaps as we look to a new year, others might join with Jane as a partner in the gospel by becoming a monthly partner. All you need to do is call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. The chief idols in Israel were the golden calves that had been set up in the cities of Dan and Bethel. 
We know that according to 2 Kings 17, that Israel worshiped the Asherim pillars as well as Baal. They also worshiped the gods of Chemosh and Moloch. These were detestable idols. The king of Assyria smashed all those idols to bits. If Israel wouldn't listen to the prophets who warned them in love, and they didn't listen, well, now they'd have to listen as Assyria smashed all of those impotent gods and proved that they were just what they were. We also know from 2 Kings 18 verse 4 that in Jerusalem, they'd been worshiping the bronze serpent that Moses had made taking a symbol intended to inspire faith in the one true God and making that symbol now into an idol. And we also know that according to 2 Chronicles 28 verse 2, that King Ahaz of Judah had made metal idols to Baal and that he had burned his own sons to them as offerings. And now says Isaiah, have a look. God's rod now stands poised over you as well. But again, while this is what happened, Isaiah says the king of Assyria didn't intend that outcome. Indeed, what they intended was to show the superiority of their own gods and goddesses. Ah, but as Isaiah saw back in chapter 6, God is seated on his eternal throne. So now let's continue to read Isaiah 10 verse 12. When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. That is, Assyria is also going to learn, and we do know that that's exactly what happened to them. And I'm going to come back to that in just a moment, but for now, let's keep reading what Isaiah has to say. I'm reading Isaiah 10, 13 to 15. For he, that is the king of Assyria, says, By the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I have understanding. I remove the boundaries of peoples and plunder their treasures. Like a bull I bring down those who sit on thrones." My hand has found like a nest the wealth of the peoples, and as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so I have gathered all the earth, and there was none that moved a wing or opened a mouth or chirped. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it, or the saw magnify itself against the one who wields it? As if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. Does this language surprise you? Think of Herod driving Jesus to Egypt so that the prophecy of Hosea might be fulfilled. Out of Egypt I have called my son. Or think of the Romans and the Jewish Sanhedrin conspiring together to nail Jesus on a cross so that it would be done at Passover and that Jesus would bring the greatest liberation the earth has ever seen. Oh, I know, says Isaiah. The nations think they're in control, but they are merely a tool in God's hand. A tool never controls the one who uses it. It's the other way around. But God is not done. Listen now to Isaiah 10, 16 to 19. Therefore, the Lord of hosts will send a wasting sickness among his stout warriors, and under his glory a burning will be kindled like the burning of a fire. The light of Israel will become a fire, and his holy one a flame, and it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. The glory of his forest and of his fruitful land the Lord will destroy, both soul and body, and it will be as when a sick man wastes away. The remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. All of us know that fires are really a remarkable thing. It can warm your house, but it can also burn your house to the ground. And says God, I'm going to put my glorious light of fire 
that illuminates my chosen people, and that same fire is going to burn Assyria to the ground. And, and that's exactly what happened. King Ahaz died. His son Hezekiah ascended to the throne in Jerusalem. Hezekiah not only rid the land of idols, he put away the high places and led the nation in a revival. And then the king of Assyria surrounded Jerusalem to destroy it, and the great God of heaven sent his angel, and on one night he struck down 185,000 of the Assyrian army in a plague. And in the morning, the Assyrians were appalled. Dead bodies were all around them. It was terrifying to them. They withdrew. And then the king of Assyria was assassinated. And eventually, the Babylonians utterly destroyed the Assyrian Empire. Oh, yeah. God rules the nations. When the one who uses the axe finishes his use of the axe, he burns that arrogant axe to the ground with fire. Now to Isaiah 10, verse 20. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. You know, that prophecy was literally fulfilled. And so we come back to the central premise, the one to be considered at Christmas. The child in the manger does seem helpless, and he does seem humble. And in truth, the great God of eternity entered into this world clothed in human flesh. He was born in a barn, and he was laid in an animal feeding trough for a bed. But as David wrote in Psalm 2, verse 10, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. And then in verse 12, Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. You know, it's easy to take the Christmas account and think only of the meekness of the son and of his humility and of his great compassion in coming to offer forgiveness to a world that had forgotten the one true God. But we forget that this same son, although he does lie in a manger, has not stopped being the king of the nations. How so? Did you know that in China, when Mao reduced the many languages of China to one, he made it possible for the first time for the gospel to easily pass through his land, and it resulted in millions upon millions upon millions of converts. Clearly, that's not what Mao intended, but he was a tool in God's hands to bring in a great company of the Chinese people into the kingdom of the one true son. And when the communist dictator of Romania, Nicolae Ceausescu, sent his secret police to remove a pastor from a church in Timisoara, it resulted in a great gathering in the square of that city proclaiming that Jesus Christ was Lord. You can't take our pastor, they said. Ceausescu commanded his armies to shoot all protesters, and they began to. But after a while, they stopped. And then in rage, Ceausescu commanded that his army bomb the entire city to the ground. But that was it. His own army said that's enough, and they took Ceausescu out of his palace, and they shot him. And in consequence, a great door was opened for the gospel, and many were ushered into glory. Kiss the sun, says the passage, lest he be angry. In Iran, after the Islamic revival, many Iranians have suffered under the oppression of Islamic fundamentalism, and in consequence, Iranians are turning to Christ as has never been seen in history before. Don't you see, the Ayatollah had not imagined that, but he was a tool in the hands of God. And in India, increased pressure on the church is resulting in the greatest growth of God's people that nation has ever seen. Notice also that Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi 
who was the founder of ISIS, was destroyed by an army, the rod of the hand of God. Such is the final destiny of all who fight against Christ. Yeah, it's true. The day when the Messiah returns, we will see the final fulfillment of his rule over the nations, but make no mistake, it has begun now. He will rule the nations. But right now, the one who rules from the seeming place of weakness, he's not helpless, for he is the one who is seated on the very throne that Isaiah saw in chapter 6. He is both the lamb, the one who was slain, but he is also the lion of the tribe of Judah, the ruler of creation. And when nations rage, they must wonder, are we only the tool in the hands of an eternal God? And if we do evil, will not the eternal God finally turn and destroy us? Now, says Isaiah, in that day, that is, in the day when God humiliates Assyria, the faithful remnant will be reminded never to depend on the nations again, but rather to depend on the one true God. Let's end our passage with Isaiah 10, 21 to 23. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of the earth. It's a sobering note on which to end, I know, and yet it's a hopeful one. We noted some time ago that Isaiah frequently speaks about a remnant. The majority, Isaiah says, were unfaithful. But, says Isaiah, Make no mistake about it. God will protect his people. And in the end, he will make the remnant of God's people to be not only saved, but the glorious people of the King. That's the hope of Christmas. John, I think it's compelling that God chooses to use the nations the way he chooses. I mean, we look around our world and there's so many evil governments and yet God would choose to use them, and in his day, and his time, they'll be used for his purpose. Yeah. We remember that a great king was born, and uh, Jesus is the great king, and he is not powerless. I think many of us have had the wrong idea of Jesus. Uh, we've assumed that, you know, until he returns again, he has no power over the nations. Not so. Even now, the God in faithfulness rules the nations. And when they have done his purposes, God will bring them into judgment. And so this leads us, I think, to a great sense of confidence that the God who sent his son rules the nations of the world. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us tomorrow as we conclude our series, A Vision for Christmas, on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Hi, this is Dr. John Newfeld. This year is coming to a close, and I couldn't be more grateful for the encouragement, prayers, and support we've received from you, so many across the country. Your support reminds me that we're not alone in our desire and commitment to teach the Word and to see people come to know Jesus. December is a critical month as we make plans for the ministry year ahead. Your continued partnership in reaching our year-end financial goals will do so much in the effort to sustain and grow the Bible teaching ministries right here at Back to the Bible Canada. Our goal by December 31st is to reach $465,000. The task is great, but I believe with a continued commitment together, we can make it happen. 
So thank you in advance and please give us a call today and make your donation at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at backtothebible.ca.